The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to the second season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. This season, death in a hot car, mistake or murder? Go to AJCBreakdown.com for additional background, photos, video, and more on the Justin Ross Harris case. Previously on Breakdown. I asked him, but then you still exercise the thought of being with someone else when you're married. And how did he respond to that question? Yep. Did you ask him a question after that? I asked him if his conscience ever kicked in. He replied with, nope. And he he had that stare in his face. I knew it was coming. I knew that I had done what every parent in their life fears they've done, and that's just leave their son in the car on a hot day. And I lost it. I just started screaming, I started yelling. What does that mean? Why does that have to charge you? Because I, because of my actions, my actions resulted in his death. What does that mean? So they're going to charge me with, with child cruelty. Do we need to get you a lawyer? Yeah. On Friday, after 15 days of testimony by 51 witnesses called by the state, we finally heard the magic words. At this time, you're on the state rest. Ladies and gentlemen, the state has rested your case. Yes, the prosecution rested its case against Justin Ross Harris. At that point, the jury had been presented with reams of evidence, watched hours of video recordings, and heard more than anyone would ever want to hear about one person's deviant sex life. It's now the defense's turn to present its case, and the trial is expected to last a week or two longer. Still unanswered, of course, is whether Harris will take the stand in his own defense. As for the prosecution's case, no witness spent more time on the stand than lead detective Phil Stoddard. As I'm sure you remember, Stoddard began his direct testimony a week ago last Friday. He wound up sitting in the witness box over the course of four days. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm going to devote a lot of this episode to Stoddard's time on the stand. Going in, I expected his testimony to be a pivotal moment of the trial. During his opening statement, defense attorney Maddox Kilgore pointed to Stoddard sitting behind the prosecution table. He accused the detective of supplying false testimony against Harris from the get-go. By the time Kilgore finished his cross, he'd landed some blows. He pointed out some of the inconsistencies in Stoddard's prior testimony. While Stoddard acknowledged a few, he held firm on others. But the detective showed up ready and testy. He definitely got in a few shots of his own. Let me start out by playing this testimony during an early moment in Kilgore's cross-examination. 
It gives you a good taste about the combative exchanges between the lead defense attorney and the lead detective. Here, Kilgore is trying to make the point that there had been no prior complaints about Harris for being a bad dad. He reminds Stoddard he has a big binder of police reports he collected during his investigation. If there was anything that had been, any of the detectives had determined from their investigation that there was any suspicion, any history of abuse or neglect, that would be reflected in your file and you would know about that. We would hope so. You didn't find anything like that in your investigation in this case? Besides the actual death. You know what I'm asking about. No, I don't. Can you please be clear on your question? You didn't find any history of abuse or neglect by Ross, did you? By history, no one reported to me any history of abuse or neglect. And you didn't find any? Once again, I think no one, I'm going to keep it at, no one reported to me any abuse or neglect. Okay. You're not testifying to us about any. You don't have anything to share with us. Except the whispers and the chats and stuff that we went through already. All right. So your testimony is that whisper and chats, things he was typing on his phone, constitute abuse or neglect. It led up to the death of Google. Like I said, Stoddard had suited up, ready to play. Before becoming a cop, Stoddard served 11 years, mostly as a medic for the U.S. Coast Guard. Too much time on too many helicopters, he said, left him a bit hard of hearing. He started out his law enforcement career with the Atlanta Police Department in 2001. Six years later, he joined Cobbs. He became a detective in the Crimes Against Persons Unit just a half year before Cooper's death. The detective made for an interesting witness. He had his share of nervous tics. He'd often move the microphone in front of him from side to side. He fidgeted from time to time, and he often fiddled with his ink pen. On direct examination, he appeared relaxed and confident. On cross, he became a bit defensive. But I would say, Stoddard never lost his cool. Stoddard was the witness to get into evidence the video recordings of his interview with Harris at police headquarters shortly after Cooper's death. He also got before the jury the recording of the meeting between Harris and his then-wife, Leanna Taylor. After Leanna left police headquarters that evening, Stoddard called Harris back in and told him he was not only facing a child cruelty charge, he was now being charged with felony murder. Stoddard testified Harris gave what he believed to be a most unusual answer. When I sat down, I charged him. I told him about the cruelty of child first and also about the felony murder charge. Um, he then said, well, there was no malicious intent. Stoddard said he'd turned the recording device off after Leanna and Harris parted ways. But when Harris made the malicious intent comment, fellow detective David Racy activated the camera and began recording what happened next. So we can hear Harris trying to make his case to the detective once again. And in the process of my forgetfulness, unfortunately, my son passed. It's not like I went to my job and said, he's going to be, I'm just going to leave him in the car. Or I didn't know the grocery store would say, I'm just going to go in for 30 minutes. He's going to be fine. And then it happened. And that's what I see. That's, that's what I personally see. I see, I meant to harm him is what, it feels like they're saying. Now, your actions 
caused his death. How is that against the law? Unfor uh, like in the case of the murder. Doesn't murder. Stoddard explains that felony murder is a death that occurs during the commission of a felony. Harris tries to argue, but then he says he can't think straight because his son just died. He then has a request. I understand you're getting guys are doing your job. That's completely understandable. You understand it's not personal, right? Well, I'm not saying we're looking at you going, I'm making judgments on you. Right. But if I really am hoping for some kind of, some kind of, between the magistrate or whoever, some kind of, I don't want, I can't be in jail for 30 days. I can't miss, I can't miss supporting my family. I can't miss my family supporting me. I can't miss burying my child. I can't do that. And, 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 you see, you see what I'm saying? I don't set the bond. The judge says, I think I did that. But I've, do you have some kind of influence that says it has no priors? And the judge would be made aware that you're not probation approval and have no criminal history. But Stoddard lets Harris know he very likely won't be getting a bond anytime soon. And indeed, Harris was denied bond, and he's been in custody ever since. As you know, Harris was later indicted for malice murder, two counts of felony murder, and five other charges. During Stoddard's direct examination, lead prosecutor Chuck Boring had the detective describe the route Harris had to take. Of course, he'd taken Cooper to eat breakfast at Chick-fil-A that morning. Harris had to take a right out of the restaurant, go a short ways on Cumberland Parkway and make a U-turn. He then had to drive a few hundred yards to the intersection of Paces Ferry Road. Turn left, you go to daycare. Go straight, you go to work. We know what route Harris took. Boring asked Stoddard about the timing of this, and I can't for the life of me understand some of his answers. And generally, how long is it? How long does it take? And we'll talk in detail about how you know this. Um, how long generally does it take when, once you leave the Chick-fil-A and you pull out onto Cumberland to get up and make that U-turn and have to decide? 30, 40 seconds. Well, we went over this in episode two. I really can't see how he can say it took just 30 to 40 seconds. I drove that route several times myself. I averaged one minute and 15 seconds to almost two minutes before having to make that left turn. And you might think that 30 seconds to a minute longer might not make a difference in how long it takes to forget a child. But it is a bit longer, and I don't think it's insubstantial, especially with all the distractions going on around you. And yes, I'm very aware that most people, including my own wife, Carol, think it doesn't matter how long it takes because they would never forget their child. This past March, Harris got a Hyundai Tucson, mounted a camera on it, and drove the route a number of times. The prosecution played the videos of his rides to the jury. I used the stopwatch on my iPhone and came up with the times, ranging from 1 minute and 8 seconds to 1 minute and 50 seconds to where you had to decide whether to make that left turn. It's not just 30 to 40 seconds. I'm sure you remember that on the day of Cooper's death, Harris went to lunch with two buddies at Publix. After that, they stopped at Home Depot so Harris could buy some light bulbs. His pals then dropped Harris off by his car where Cooper was still strapped inside. Stoddard noted that Harris forgot to mention during his police interview that he went to Home Depot. He also didn't say he stopped by his car to toss the light bulbs inside. And the detective said he found something unusual about Harris's answer when he told the detective what he did at lunchtime. When you got to the lunch portion, did he tell you about where he went to lunch and things like that? He did. Okay. 
And where did he tell you he went to lunch? He said he went to Publix. Okay. And when you got to the point after Publix, um, did you notice anything that he did when he started describing uh, what had happened next? There was a big pause. So he's sitting there explaining to me where he was going, went to Publix, and then there's a big pause. And when he starts, does he start doing um or saying things like that? Yes. Okay. All right. What does he start saying? He starts saying um. Okay. So let's go back to the recording of the police interview. Here's what Stoddard was talking about. Day's going good. Um, lunchtime rolls around. I got some guys that I work with across the street. They came and picked me up. Um, we went to Publix, ate lunch. They took me back and dropped me off. Um, um, and then I finished the work day and then we had plans to go to a movie. Me and the two guys I was on to we had plans to go to a movie at five o'clock, which is where I was going. Well, what do you think? Does that sound like Harris was trying to hide the fact he'd gone to his car at lunchtime because he wanted to check and make sure Cooper was dead? Or was he at that very moment remembering what had happened, realizing he'd stopped by his car at lunch and then decided he wouldn't dare admit it? Or had he just forgotten about it? Stoddard also addressed testimony he gave at Harris's probable cause hearing about two weeks after Cooper's death. Stoddard said Harris was, quote, all the way inside the frame, unquote, when he opened the driver's side door during the lunchtime visit. When he reaches in, he comes up, he opens up the door, and as he's reaching in, he kind of turns his head a little bit. Um, he's in there, he has a clear view, and he kind of turns his head and then just tosses the light bulbs into the car. I've listened to and read over this countless times. I think Stoddard is clearly giving the impression that when Harris is reaching inside the car, he's in the car and has a clear view. But as I've said, and as the surveillance video showed, Harris's head never went below the roofline of his SUV. He was never, quote, all the way in there, unquote, and at that time did not have a clear view. On Monday, Prosecutor Boring gave Stoddard another chance to explain it. As he comes walking up to the door, he opens up the car door, he steps into the frame of the door. He is in the frame. He is in there. He has a clear view. And by a clear view, I mean there's nothing between the defendant and a view of the interior of that car. He now, is open. Now, I was going to say, can you, looking at this video, is there anything to say exactly what he's looking at or anything like no. that? No. Never once we're going to say where his eyes were. But I will say there is nothing between him and a view of the inside of that car. Now, um, when you see it from the other side, too, does he stay straight up or does he do anything else? No. When he comes up to the car, it appears he bends down a little bit. And as far as you can see from this uh, video, uh, what does he ever go, his head inside the car, anything like that? No. Not once we said that he ever put his head into the inside of that car. Right. Stoddard has never said those exact words, but he sure had given that impression. I can't understand why he didn't just say, he could have given a better explanation when he testified two years ago. It was, at that time, incredibly misleading. During cross-examination, Kilgore pressed the detective about it again. So you agreed that in July 2014, uh, when specifically asked, can he see the car seat, you responded, he's in there, he has a clear view. Yes, sir. All right. And... 
I mean, just getting right down to it, you're, you're, you're suggesting that when he put the light bulbs in the car, he can sit in the car seat. I'm suggesting that when he walks up to the car and opens the door, he has a clear view. Okay. As he continues forward into the door frame, he has a clear view. I'm not stating where his eyes are. I'm just stating he has a clear view. Ross walks up to the car, pops open the car door. As he walks in, he turns his head. He's actually looking above the car, and he throws the light bulbs into the car. Throws the light bulbs into the car, shuts the door, walks into work. Okay. You agree that that was your testimony in January 2015? Sounds right. Okay. And is it your testimony or your belief uh, that you're, you're describing the same thing about in July 2014 when asked if he could see the car seat? You said he's in there, he has a clear view. Yes, definitely. You think that's the same thing? I do. Maybe to the jury this means very little, or maybe they'll hang on it. I just found it baffling. With Stoddard on the stand, Boring got in a mountain of damaging evidence against Harris. Like a testimony about a video Harris watched of a veterinarian named Ernie Ward. Ward decided that a good way to warn people about the danger of leaving their pets in cars was to get inside a hot car himself and videotape the experience. So he can be seen sitting in his car, which has the windows cracked about an inch. He has a large temperature gauge that he frequently shows to the camera. He sits there for 30 minutes, to a point where he's drenched in sweat and clearly suffering. Here is Ward well into his demonstration. Needless to say, it's incredibly hot. 25 minutes. It's now, oh gosh, what is it? 113 degrees. It's awful. Uh, the only thought that's going through my head right now is I just, I want out of the car. You know, it's just uh, everything in my body is saying, get out, get out, get out. Uh, I can just feel rivulets of sweat just careening down my body. I don't know if you can tell, but I mean, I'm just, I'm fully drenched now. Uh, I have sweat just completely cascading down my face and nose, my lips. I mean, the whole point of this exercise was really to see what it feels like. What, what would it feel like to a dog to be stuck in a car? You know, you're helpless. You have no control over what's happening. You don't understand what's happening. You just know that your body is getting so overheated that you can be in real danger. I mean, this kills, and it's a lousy way to die. There was also this email Harris received from his then-wife, Leanna, in early 2013. What was the subject line of the email? The subject line is, don't be this dad. And what was included in the email? Um, a link. And what was the link to? The link is to a myfoxatlanta.com story. Um, New York dad forgets baby in car for eight hours on cold day. But Stoddard also conceded a point that has long been a point of great frustration to Harris's legal team. Previously, Cobb police had said, Harris conducted research by searching for information about children dying in hot cars. Here's Kilgore asking Stoddard, to set the record straight. In other words, he never Googled or typed any search terms for any uh, video involving a bed or a hot car or anything like that, right? Not that I could look at. 
In our last episode, we went into great sordid detail about Harris's sex life. We highlighted the testimony of several women who testified. They either met Harris for sex or engaged in sexual banter with him in online chats. Two of them, including a minor, said they'd fallen in love with him. Before Boring finished his direct examination of Stoddard, he got the detective to read chat after chat after chat Harris had with other women. In one, for example, Harris referred to Cooper writing, quote, that joker drains my paychecks, unquote. Here's a sampling of a few other chats, read into evidence by Detective Stoddard. The first one occurred on a Sunday in January 2014. Harris had messaged a woman he was going to play the guitar during the second service at church. And it appears Harris messaged her again while he was in church that very day. How does this person respond? Uh, screen name, Kiki, K-E-K-E. She's like, in church, two exclamation points. The defendant's like, I know. Doesn't mean I don't want it. Looking at message at 10.58 a.m., does he ask her a question? Yep. In explicit terms, Harris asked the woman to perform a sex act on him. Here's another. Looking at the, uh, the message that was posted, not by the defendant, um, what was the, the message that was posted? I'm doing something shouldn't be doing. And does he respond? He does. What are you doing? What does Chrissy, the screen name, respond? Cheating. What does he say? I cheat a lot. Um, then what does she respond? That's not good. Or SMH, shake my head. That's not good. I know it's not good, but I'm addicted to sex. And another. What does she say uh, right here at 6.59 p.m.? No, I'm actually really classy. I live two lives. That's why it needs to stay between us. How does he respond? Defendant responds, I have two lives, too. Because she or the person responds, then we are perfect. Here's Harris responding to one woman's question. Why did you ever get married? She wanted to know this because Harris had told her he was initially happily married. But then he said, Leanna changed. Well, how does she respond when he says that she changed? Oh, I see. Why don't you try counseling? And what, how does he respond? Defendant states we have... Plus, I kind of like being bad. Here's one final one. Uh, Post says, I don't want to settle down. 21F and wanting to live it up. Smiley face. Okay. Now, how does he respond to that? What does he say on May 23rd at 304 p.m.? It says, I settled down, kind of regret it. Toward the end of Stoddard's direct examination, Boring brought out an interesting piece of evidence. It's about what Harris wrote on an iPhone app called Evernote. It contained notes Harris jotted down after hearing a sermon at his church, just three days before Cooper's death. What was the title of his note? Um, Anatomy of Temptation. And what did uh, the note say under Anatomy of Temptation? Underneath Anatomy of Temptation, it says desire is greater than sin, and it doesn't say it's greater than, it's like a greater than sign. So desire is greater than sin is greater than death. Boring then made it a point to show a printout of the Evernote to the jury. Boring never said why he was putting this into evidence. Was he suggesting to the jury that Harris thought his desires and sins were going to lead to Cooper's death? Or some other sinister thought? During his cross-examination, Kilgore was eager to return to that piece of evidence. Here he is questioning Stoddard about the Evernote. Was your testimony of direct just a moment ago that... Um, what this evidence indicates is desire is greater than sin is greater than death. Correct. Okay. That's what you believe that that says? Yes. Okay. Did you contact 
the pastor, David Eldridge, and discuss with him what that sermon was all about? I did not. Did not? I did not. What the exhibit demonstrates is uh, the word desire, and then a slash and an arrow, the word sin, slash and an arrow, and the word death. That's what it, that's what it shows, right? Or it shows a slash greater than, but yes, I'll agree, it could also be an arrow. Well, in fact, if it was greater than, it wouldn't have that little slash in front of it, would it? <clears throat> it could. Isn't it possible? Since you didn't speak to David Eldridge, we'll have to just kind of go out on the limb here. But isn't it possible that what this sermon actually was about was the fact that desire leads to sin and sin leads to spiritual death? Isn't that what it actually means? It could. Score one for Kilgore. But Stoddard later connected with a counterpunch of his own. This was when Kilgore pulled out a photo Harris took of Cooper at Little Apron Daycare on June the 11th, a week before the child's death. It's an adorable photo. It shows little Cooper snuggled up and sound asleep, taking a midday nap. Before pulling out the photo, Kilgore asked this question. It is fair to say that, that what you learned through interviewing these people uh, was generally that Ross loved Cooper. He bragged on him and he spent time with him. That was their general opinion, yes. As for the photo? Ross texted this to his wife on June 11th. He did. But more importantly, um, with this photograph, if you look at the gallery where that photograph comes from, there is a picture of his exposed erect penis also on the same screen as the picture of his son sleeping. I know that you're interested in talking about uh, Ross's sexual endeavors. Um, but what I'm asking you about right now is the nature of the relationship between Ross and Cooper. Okay? I think that shows it, because if your son's picture is on the gallery, so on the phone, on the gallery, is a picture of his sleeping son. It, it's a beautiful picture. But on that same gallery, there's a picture of his exposed, erect, penis in a turgid state on the same gallery the same page when you go through his phone it says double life you done i'm sorry is that a question you, fin you finished with your i am done sir speech. thank you point team stoddard our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. But Kilgore had some more moments of his own. And this is a point that has always made me wonder, Harris being an IT guy. 
Harris was arrested on June 18, 2014, just hours after Cooper died inside his hot car. If he'd been planning his son's death, wouldn't he have considered the possibility that police would want to question him and investigate him? Like looking through his computer and his phone? Kilgore reminded Stoddard that the Kick and Whisper apps were still on Harris's iPhone at the time he was arrested. They were hidden, probably from Leanna, under a weather app. But a computer forensics specialist later testified he found them pretty easily. Here's Kilgore questioning Stoddard about it. But he didn't delete those apps on the 18th, did he? He did not. That Kick app was still on his phone. Correct. The Whisper app was still on his phone. He did not delete them, did he? No. He had a gallery uh, of images in the thousands that included um, lots of very graphic, filthy sexual images. Fair to say? Yes. Okay. And he didn't delete those on the 18th either, did he? No. They were all there. I won't say they were all there, but there was... Thousands. Thousands. Mm-hmm. We're still there. And you, um, you certainly would agree that if you wanted to, on the 18th, Ross could have deleted this Whisper app, he could have deleted the Kick app, he could have deleted all of those images that were on his phone. True. Kilgore didn't stop there. And, and as a matter of fact, on the 18th, through these applications, in particular what we've been talking about the past two days, Whisper and Kick, he added to the filth on the 18th, didn't he? Yes, sir. Okay. On the 18th, on that Kick app, which he did not delete from his phone, he had all kind of communications with, uh, with other women uh, that morning and throughout the day, including the exchange of uh, sexual images. Yes, sir. And graphic sexual language. Yes, sir. Then Kilgore referenced a woman who previously testified she met Harris at a parking lot near I-75. Inside Harris's car, she performed a sexual act on him. And you agree that, in fact, one of those communications on the morning of the 18th uh, with a woman by the name of Elizabeth Smith, that morning, he actually asked her to hook up that very day. I believe it was Elizabeth Smith. I'd have to review, but yes. And just to make clear, Elizabeth Smith was the one who Ross had previously hooked up with and had a a tryst uh, in his car. Correct. The morning he contacted her again and asked if if she could come do that to him again. I believe it was her. Okay. Detective Stoddard, you certainly would agree that uh, planning a hookup to get fellatio in your car during the day is inconsistent with someone who was going to murder their child in their car the same day, isn't it? I don't think it said in his car. He was just trying to hook up. Okay. But when they hooked up previously, it had been in the car. Yes. And in fact, that chat, they talked about that very fact, that it had been in the car. I believe so. Kilgore also noted that Harris had been planning a cruise in the fall of 2014 with Leanna, Cooper, and his brother's family. Here's Kilgore asking Stoddard about three web searches Harris conducted nine days before Cooper's death. Carnival Cruise Lines Kids, Carnival Cruise Lines Kids Policy, and do Kids Cruise Free. Yes, sir. Harris also made a web query as to the cost of a child's passport. 
On June 17th, his brother's wife messaged Harris, wanting to know if he'd found out information about the cruise. Harris said he was awaiting an answer from his travel agent. Well, actually, that was not the truth. Harris had not sent that email, but he did message the travel agent just minutes after getting his sister-in-law's message. And you would agree that objectively, if he was planning a cruise in the future with his son, that would be inconsistent with a plan to murder the boy the next day. Lead prosecutor Boring apparently didn't want the jury to hear Stoddard's answer. Judge, I'm going to object that that's speculative and argumentative here. He's asking her to make base conclusions based on the facts. He's asking for the objective evidence. Kilgore ended his cross Wednesday morning. He devoted a lot of his time asking about Leanna Taylor, Harris's ex-wife. During the probable cause hearing two weeks after Cooper's death, Stoddard strongly insinuated that Leanna was somehow involved in her son's killing. Leanna was never charged, and her lawyer, Lawrence Zimmerman, has condemned Cobb police for not completely clearing her name. When questioning Stoddard, Kilgore had one main objective. Show the jury that Leanna became a suspect for some of the same reasons Harris now stands accused. Much of this had to do with testimony that Harris, after pulling his dead son out of his car, didn't act like a father who just lost his child in such an unthinkable way. Here's Stoddard on the stand. Leanna Harris has been a suspect in this case all the way through it. Um, the case is at the final conclusion point and no evidence. So there's two ways to look at her as a suspect. Is she being actively investigated? No, she is not. Did any evidence rise to the point where we had probable cause to take an arrest warrant for Leanna Harris? No, we did not. So at this time, is she a suspect? No, I cannot say that. She's still listed as one on the report, but she is not part of an active investigation. It's been reported there were no tears? Correct. And you testified about this in July of 2014, that she didn't show any emotion and she didn't ask to see her son, right? Correct. Your report, you indicate that her demeanor was calm and collected. I do. And there's no report that you made that she was crying or had tears or showed any emotion, right? That's correct. Is that why she was a suspect? In the statements that she made. I'm asking about her demeanor and emotion. Yes. She wasn't reacting the way you thought that she should be reacting. Isn't that true? That's part of it. Kilgore mentioned the meeting Leanna had with Harris at the police station shortly before he was formally charged. She's calm and she's reassuring to her husband. Isn't that true? That's true. And we don't see her falling out, having a fit, crying. We don't see any of that, do we? No, we don't. And that's why you consider her a suspect because you don't think she reacted the way you think she should. And that is a very small part. It's a whole picture. You have to know all the pieces to know why she was considered a suspect. Mm -hmm. We do have her see on that recording almost the entirety of the time they're in there. We see Ross crying and carrying on and being very emotional. Yes, at that time when Leanna and him were together, he was very emotional. He was 
way on one side of the emotional spectrum, she was on the other. Is that fair to say? That would be fair to say. Kilgore then tried to go in for the kill, but boring? He wasn't going to let that happen. The fact of the matter is, you were dead wrong about Leanna Harris. She's in no way involved in any sort of conspiracy with her husband, is she? That's been answered. She is not a suspect involved in an investigation at this time. Isn't it true you're looking for a conspiracy and you're looking for nefarious motive? So you're seeing what you want to see. Now I'm going to object that that is argumentative. It is argumentative. Okay. Thank you, Detective. Marietta criminal defense lawyer Ashley Merchant, one of Breakdown's frequent commentators, was in court in Brunswick when Stoddard ended his time on the stand. Here's her take on how the detective did. As far as Stoddard, I thought he did a lot better than I anticipated and than I think the defense would have liked. I think that he came across as being one-sided in his investigation, and I think we're going to see the defense at the end tie that in and use those statements and use this as a rush to judgment theory, you know, that, that once Stoddard decided that he thought Ross was guilty, Ross could not do or say anything that was going to go against that image. I told her I expected Kilgore to put Stoddard through a withering cross-examination. I thought that we would see more, um, I don't want to say attack, but you know, a lot of times you think that the, the cross is going to get a little bit a little bit more tense, but it was very genteel. It was very um, professional, the cross-examination. Merchant also said she thought Boring was pretty effective when he followed up Kilgore's cross with his own redirect examination. What we saw was Mr. Boring asking very direct and leading questions, um, which typically you see on cross-examination. And Mr. Kilgore, you know, he objected a few times, they weren't sustained, and at that point as a defense lawyer, it becomes uncomfortable because you don't want to have to stand up every single time because the jury gets mad and object. And so Mr. Boring was able to take a lot of liberties in his redirect examination and really just rehabilitate Stoddard and, and sort of put words in Stoddard's mouth that I don't know if Stoddard would have been able to articulate in his own language. Here are some examples of what she was talking about. First, Here's Boring addressing Kilgore's question about Harris and Leanna both not acting like parents who just lost a child. The prosecutor gets Stoddard to testify about Harris's open display of emotion while he met his wife at police headquarters. Before or after he was told he was going to be arrested? That was after. Was that before or after he was put back in the cell and uh, with, as he complained about an uncomfortable cot in a metal toilet? And here's Boring clearing up Stoddard's misleading statement during the probable cause hearing about Harris having a clear view inside the SUV at lunchtime. You testified and today, or this week and at the PC hearing, that at some point he turns his head and it's above the frame or at the frame or something of that nature. Now, is that at the same point you were describing that if he looked or where he was, that he would have had a clear view? No. Is that whole process of him opening the door, coming up, going to it before he gets his head up to the frame, is that the process you're talking about? I'm going to object to leaving the head. I mean, I'm just dead. Okay. What is the process you're talking about? As he's walking up to the door. Okay. Here's boring again. It sounds like he's almost testifying himself. Is there any problem, anything you know, he would have had some problem getting dropped off at the door in the 90 degree temperatures and just walking into work with a bag? No. Have you ever had, have you seen him carry other stuff into the treehouse? Yes. Is he walking with a Chick-fil-A bag? Yes. A guitar? Yes. 
Detective, have you ever just thrown light bulbs you just bought? No. Of course, we couldn't go through a whole week of prosecution testimony without hearing from a woman who met Harris in an online chat. She's another woman Harris tried to hook up with for sex. Angela Cornett tagged herself Dark Phoenix 1982 on the online chat site Scout when Bama XH contacted her in the spring of 2014. Prosecutors have previously shown that Bama XH was Harris's screen name. Here's Cornett. I was looking for just dating casually. Um, it seemed more of a type hookup. He gave me kind of a creepy feeling, um, kind of sketchy. He seemed a little adamant on trying to just meet up and just get sexual favors from me, and I just wasn't interested in that. She remembered Harris also told her he was married. Also, he told her this. I do vividly remember the statement of him telling me that he wanted to sleep with as many different women as possible in his lifetime. Cornette said her last messages with Harris occurred on the day of Cooper's death. This made her woman number six to testify that she had engaged in sexually explicit messages with Harris on that awful day. He told me he was working as well, and he was bored and horny. Now, um, after that, did uh, he ask you if you wanted to see a picture or something on his body? Yes, he did. Whereupon Boring pointed out a photo to Cornette. And was that a picture of his penis? Yes. And did he send you a photograph? Yes. Cornette never met Harris, never knew his full name. She only learned it when police questioned her a few weeks later. She said they ended their online chat that day at 3.04 p.m. At that time, Cooper had been strapped inside Harris's SUV for almost six hours. Like I've said, I've been covering courts and legal affairs for more than 25 years, and I've covered more trials than I can count. But on Thursday, I saw something I've never seen before. All 16 jurors in the Harris trial collectively left the courthouse, walked out into the parking lot in single file, and saw what prosecutors have called the murder weapon. Yes, Harris's 2011 Hyundai Tucson had been transported from Marietta to Brunswick. On Thursday morning, with Cooper's red rear-facing car seat in position, the car was parked in the courthouse parking lot. It was sitting under the careful gaze of several deputies. They kept curious onlookers, and yes, the media scrum, a safe distance away. Judge Mary Staley Clark had allowed the viewing over the defense's objections. So the judge walked out into the parking lot. A chair was carried out for her court reporter, who sat nearby. Defense attorneys and prosecutors were stationed a few yards away. The news media was kept at bay on a sidewalk and told to shut off all cameras as the jury walked outside. Harris did not attend the viewing. He waived his right to be there. The jurors were told they couldn't talk or ask any questions. They couldn't get inside the car or even touch it. Initially, they were allowed to walk twice around the SUV. Then a deputy opened the driver's side door and the jury walked around the vehicle twice more. Then the jury was given five more minutes to look at the SUV from any angle. Some jurors walked up to the car just as Harris did at lunchtime the day of Cooper's death. A few jurors stuck their head inside the SUV and looked around. One guy, wearing a turquoise shirt, walked up and acted as if he were tossing something inside the SUV, just as Harris tossed light bulbs into the car that day. Ashley Merchant was standing next to me as we watched the highly unusual proceeding. 
We talked about it later. Today, I think when we saw the um, the jury outside looking at the car, I was really watching the jurors and trying to see which jurors were interested and which jurors weren't interested. Half of the jurors were just like, okay, it's a car, you know, just standing there. They didn't really do much. But there were several jurors that almost looked like they were trying to walk the distance off, you know, and, and get different angles and sticking their head in and looking around the car and really, really into it and paying attention. And, you know, you got to think about it. Normally, the jury is sitting in a box and the defense lawyers and the state are presenting the evidence. You know, they don't get to touch it during trial. But then back when they go in the deliberation rooms, they do that. They touch the evidence. They move it around. They measure stuff. They do all that. But we don't ever see that. So we actually got a glimpse into what will happen during their deliberations while they were out there. When Staley Clark and the attorneys got back in the courtroom and before jurors got back into the box, defense attorney Kilgore made a motion. Is that this procedure, this view, invites the jurors to, to substitute their view, substitute what perhaps they could see or not see, for what Ross Harris could see or could not see on June 18th. And I want to point out that we've got jurors of all different heights on this jury. I'm 5'5", five five, but we've got a couple of jurors that are even shorter than I am. And what we just observed uh, when they did the jury view was several of the jurors came into the doorframe, and they were clearly substantially shorter than Ross Harris. Their view, merely standing in the frame, would have been totally and completely different from the objective evidence that is in this case. I think it's completely messed the trial up. I think he is absolutely going to be denied a fair trial. I don't think it can be undone. I'm asking for a mistrial. Lead prosecutor Boring would have none of it. He made a strong and quite pointed argument to have the trial continue. It almost sounded like he was warming up for his closing argument at the end of the trial. This was something that occurred the entire day. The jury was absolutely allowed to go in and look at this piece of evidence to look inside, to see what the defendant saw that morning while he was driving with the child, to see where the car seat was actually situated in a real environment, to see where the driver's seat is located in a real environment, to see where the defendant was sitting for those 30 seconds while he's messing around in his car that morning while the child is sitting there right beside him. They're allowed to see how it looked when he came back. He comes back to the car that afternoon. We forget about that. That's not mentioned. He gets in and sits down right beside his dead child and drives for minutes. This wasn't just, we're looking at this evidence to see what happened at lunch. This is the murder weapon for this entire case. As expected, Staley Clark denied the motion for a mistrial. After the state rested, it was the defense's turn. They called two witnesses on Friday afternoon. The first was a real estate agent who testified that in the weeks leading up to Cooper's death, Harris and Leanna had approached him in search of a new home. A good school district was their top priority, he said. Next, the defense called Cobb County Police Detective Sean Murphy. The defense team wanted to revisit what Cobb Police told a magistrate under oath that Harris had told them he'd recently conducted web searches about kids dying in hot cars. So, say you're a magistrate judge and you're told that in a case where a child just died after being left in a hot car for seven hours. What would you do? That's a no-brainer, right? Grant the warrant. But, like I said, 
Stoddard has since conceded that Harris conducted no such searches. And when the lead detective was on the stand, the defense tried to ask him about those misstatements by police. But Judge Staley Clark sustained a prosecution objection. She ruled Stoddard did not have to answer questions about the warrants. Why? He wasn't the one to swear to them under oath. So like I said, on Friday, the defense called Sean Murphy. He was the detective who swore out more than two dozen of those search warrants, many of them saying that Harris and even Leanna had conducted internet searches of kids dying in hot cars. But before Murphy took the stand, Prosecutor Jesse Evans filed a motion. He asked Judge Staley Clark to prohibit the detective from talking about the very warrants he swore under oath to be true. Why? Murphy got his information from others, and that's inadmissible hearsay, Evans said. This led to impassioned arguments by defense attorney Brian Lumpkin, who asked the judge to reconsider her decision. Here he is giving the judge an example of what Murphy said to support one warrant that was granted on the day Cooper died. During an interview with Justin, he stated that he recently researched through the internet child deaths inside vehicles and what temperature it needs for that to occur. That initial, the affidavit information um, stating that during the interview with Justin, he stated he recently researched through the internet child deaths inside vehicles and so forth. That was used for 10 search warrants, 10 times testifying under oath to those statements, which uh, we know at this point, based on the evidence, are completely false. Here's also what Murphy said when obtaining a warrant to search Harris's iPhone 5. He also made statements regarding um, that he had researched uh, how long it takes someone to die inside a vehicle, what's the temperature it to needs to be. And uh, with his iPhone capabilities, he has internet access. Possibly see if had researched that information on the phone as well. Lumpkin then made what appeared to be a pretty compelling argument. The defendant has constitutional rights. This court is in place in order to uphold those, and we believe the state's attempt uh, to try to convince this court that somehow this is hearsay and this should be precluded, the truth of these matters should be precluded from getting to these ladies and gentlemen simply because they don't want it in. We have a right to put up a defense for Mr. Ross Harris. We've been very clear from the beginning, part of that defense is attacking the credibility of this investigation. What we've seen and what the evidence has borne out is in fact, this investigation has been fraught with misinformation, misleading, misstatements, and outright lies. We were trying to put in front of this ladies and gentlemen of the jury to understand the full context of that, where some of this was coming from. Frankly, I think the state is putting the court in a very difficult position by suggesting, well, you can't go into it through the lead detective because he's not specifically the one who said it. And then we bring the person who said it, well, you can't go into that because he may have gotten it from somebody else who may well be the lead detective. We don't know because we can't even ask that question. The truth should not be considered some sort of weighty object that keeps us from moving forward. The truth should be what we're giving to these ladies and gentlemen. That's what we're trying to do. The state is obstructing that. In response, Prosecutor Evans said he found it interesting for the defense to make such accusations. It already made false statements when it presented its opening statement to the jury, he said. Uh, yet they want to come in here and try to slander the state and try to talk about all of uh, the misstatements that they made when uh, up on the slides so they actually showed an opening they clearly were showing stuff that was just 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 false now i'd like to hope that that's a, a mere uh, mistake on their part and not an intentional falsehood 
Um, but uh, it doesn't do anyone any good to hurl accusations such as that. It doesn't answer the legal questions that are before the court, and that's what we need to focus on. Evans said the defense can't bring in a witness who doesn't have firsthand knowledge about things and then expect that witness to regurgitate what he did to the jury. But for all of these other things, we need to go through them one by one. Uh, you know, statements at the outset that the defendant and wife are being questioned now. He's not a part of that interview. He doesn't have firsthand knowledge of what's being said to him. All of that information that's being relayed to the magistrate is coming from an additional source. It would be hearsay. It's not uh, uh, properly admissible um, before this jury because it's other people passing on from that information. Recently researched uh, you know, child deaths in a car. Well, we're talking about semantics here, quite frankly. Um, and and you know, yeah, we, we can talk about that in, in closing argument, but all of that is information he's getting from another source. That would be hearsay, and you've already ruled on those litigated matters. Uh, statements about how long it would take to die in a car, it's hearsay, it's semantics, it's not relevant before this jury. Clearly all the information that this detective was passing on to the magistrate was information that he was getting from other people who in turn were getting it from third persons themselves. And in the authority we provided to the court, that's absolutely impermissible. There's no constitutional right to present hearsay evidence. By the time Lumpkin and Evans finished their arguments, all eyes were on the judge. Would she take a recess and think about it? Would she call it a day and mull it over over the weekend break? No, it took her just two seconds to make up her mind. I stand by my prior ruling a record has been made uh, by the defense as to its proper, and we can proceed with the jury in the courtroom for cross-examination. Next, on Breakdown, Harris's ex-wife, Leanna Taylor, is expected to take the stand for the defense. Judge, I think... It was handled completely appropriately and professionally, and now the defense is trying to engineer error by, man, man, boo, boo, we don't want to participate and give you any suggestions, but now that it's happened, we're going to ask for a mistrial. So we would uh, absolutely object and ask your honor to deny the motion. Season two of Breakdown, Death in a Hot Car, Mistake or Murder, is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallex. Audio production by Chris Basta of Bare Knuckles Creative. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson, Chris Nicholson, and Chris Basta. Special thanks to Burt Roten, Ross Cavett, Chris Nicholson, and Buddy Hall.